want to open by asking you whether or not you think the first Christmas was a white Christmas. Think it was snowing on the first Christmas? Was it a white Christmas in the Middle East? Well, we don't, we don't know, right? We don't know. We don't know if it was December, actually. We, we don't know when Jesus was born. We know that He was. We know all kinds of historical details, but we, we don't really know what time of year it was. Um, if it were this time of year, it could have been snowing. Have you seen the news lately? There's all kinds of snow in Israel right now. It's creating all kinds of problems. Uh, record snowfall right now. Pull it up. Not now. Pull it up later and uh, see some of the beautiful pictures and say, wow, Jerusalem, snow covered. Um, Israel, snow covered. Uh, not just the mountains. It's, it's quite amazing. Uh, where it's not so amazing is I'm thinking, okay, in about a year from now, OBC is going to go to Israel. I really, really hope it's 65 and not snowing. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. There are so many things we, we know historically about Jesus coming into this world. And there are many things we don't know. Many things we do know historically. We know that He came into this world. So many things we don't know. But one thing we do know is the right interpretation of His coming. Isn't that interesting? We know the right interpretation. We know that He came. We know a lot of the historical details. But we know, even more so than that, we know the meaning. We know the significance. And I'm so glad. I'm so glad that we don't just have to go around saying, what, is, what does Christmas mean to you? What does the coming of Jesus mean to you? Now, I like that. It's a great conversation starter because I can talk about what it means. So I appreciate that, but we're not left to that. Well, to you it means this, and to me it means that, and to you it means this, and to me it means that, and it doesn't mean anything. It's in the eye of the beholder, maybe. And now the person with the most persuasive speech, uh, the most charismatic religious leader with the newest kind of spin on things, the most best articulate guru, I'm so glad that the Lord Jesus Christ not only came into this world, He spoke about the meaning of His coming, but not only that, He had apostles. And by definition, an apostle is someone who officially represents someone else. They speak with their authority. And so when we read Galatians chapter 4, as we did earlier, and we will in just a moment, Galatians, from the very beginning, we learn is written by the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle of Christ Jesus. And guess what? He gives us the interpretation. He explains the, if you will, to use church talk, the infallible meaning of Jesus coming into this world. And so this morning what we're going to do is learn about the meaning, the meaning of Christmas in that sense, the meaning of Him coming here. And we'll do more than learn about the meaning. I hope that causes us to... I hope it stirs our devotion and, and causes us to want to worship Him. So we'll look at Galatians 4 in greater detail uh, for our study this morning. And if you'd like to take notes, I'll follow an outline of seven devotion-stirring features. Seven devotion-stirring features of the coming of Jesus. Uh, Worship-inducing, if you would like. And um, I hope that's actually what happens. I hope we learn facts. We learn meaning. Um, but then based upon what we learn factually and when it comes to meaning, it causes us to want to worship Him. It causes us to want to worship Him and to actually worship Him. Number one, 
Number one, the first devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the timing of it. The timing of it. Talk about impeccable timing. Bring new meaning to impeccable timing. Verse 4 says of Galatians chapter 4, But when the fullness of time had come. That is pregnancy talk. Not Mary's pregnancy, although it's directly related. But, but that's pregnancy talk. When the pregnancy had come to term, when the fullness of time had come, and then we're going to read, God sent His Son. It's very graphic, and we can all understand what He's getting at. We've been waiting. We've been anticipating this day. We've been waiting for it to come to full term. We've been waiting for the birth of the baby. And here it's not talking about the baby per se, though it's related. It's talking about time. The fullness of time. And think about what a big deal that is. We're dealing with now a God not of randomness, a God of not, not of plan B. We're dealing with this God who has a plan and who has a purpose. And when the fullness of time had come, when the right time, when the long expected time, the anticipated time came, that's when He sent His Son. It's remarkable. And think about how long people have been waiting for this. Clear back to Genesis chapter 3, we have, we have a promise. Waiting, waiting, waiting. All along God has had a plan. It's not just an afterthought in light of Ephesians chapter 1 and other passages we've been talking about on Sunday nights. But we've been waiting. Genesis, Genesis 4, Eve probably has hope in her heart that maybe here we would have deliverance. God has helped me to, to bear a child. Maybe, maybe He's the one that's spoken of in chapter 3. And we learn pretty fast, I think it's in verse 8, that Cain's not the Messiah. He's not the, he's not the Savior. He's not the Deliverer. That's not the fullness of time. He's a murderer. And so we're waiting and we have Abrahamic covenant and we've got the Mosaic covenant and all the sacrificial system prefiguring, anticipating. We've got the Davidic covenant. We've got the new covenant promise. We've got all this, this plan and purpose of God and anticipation, foreshadowing, waiting, 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 prophets announcing, waiting, waiting, waiting. And then it's boom, you know, hallelujah chorus, fullness of time. He comes, he comes. My friends, today we, we worship the risen Christ. We worship this, this amazing triune God, but we worship Him as the one who has a plan and who has a purpose and the climactic high point, fullness of time, would be the coming of His Son. The meaning of His coming. Central. Prime position. The birth of the birth should move us to give thanks and praise and anticipation. Now the fullness of time had come. It does make me think, uh, before we move on, a little bit about His second coming, if not a lot about His second coming. Because so many times the prophets put the two together. They, there's, not the, there's not the break in between, if you will. And so we, we, we know that there is one. But we read those, those passages about, uh, like in Isaiah chapter 9, it's a Christmas kind of passage, and we, we, we kind of get this odd look on our face, if we're honest. The government shall rest on his shoulders? Well, yeah. But now we have, we, we, we have second coming in view, and, and we're waiting for that. 
we're anticipating that when, when he returns and sets every wrong right. But we know that he will. Because he really came a first time. And he really was raised from the dead, didn't stay dead. And he really ascended bodily and it was said that he would return the same way he left. And so as we think about our great God and as we, we, we consider ourselves wanting to worship and our, our worship is provoked because in the fullness of time he came and he's the God who works on his time frame and there is a plan and a purpose that can cause us to say even the, the fullness, the culmination, that long anticipated event of his return will happen. It'll happen at the right time. It'll happen according to His plan. And as they were waiting for the first coming, we wait for a second coming. Another devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the sovereign grace of it. Would be the sovereign grace of it. This is in view in the words of verse 4, again, where we read, God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. Now, that statement there, we're going to look at from different angles and we're going to pick it up like, like a rock and look at different sides and we'll pick it up and look at the other side and look at it from a different light. But for now, let, let's look at that statement, God sent forth His Son as something that reminds us of God's sovereign grace. I don't think I ever used the word sovereign in my life. I don't think it ever left my lips until I became a Christian. I I heard it before. You know, Jaguar had a car, I don't know if they do anymore, called Sovereign. You know, I mean, we we use it a little bit in our vernacular, not a whole lot. But now that I'm a Christian, I use it all the time. Because I've been reading my Bible. And the Bible uses that description of God as far as the Word. He is the only Sovereign, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. But it describes God as Sovereign without even using the Word. It means His His kingship. It means he's the authority. It means he's in charge. It means he's the the king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, It means he, how about this, does whatever he wants. His sovereignty. It means his, his absolute total freedom. Okay? Psalm 115 says, he does whatever he pleases. Daniel 4.35, he does according to his will. How about this? No one will say to him, What have you done? No one will question his actions. Because he does whatever he wants. Because he's God by definition. He's sovereign. He's the king. He's free. Now as a pastor, I'm going to do my very best to to have you quote unquote join my club. Um, And using the word sovereign a lot now. Because it's a great way to describe God. Because the Bible describes him that way in title and in description. And it helps us to realize that God is different from us. And God is free in a way that we're not free. Because he defines right and wrong by what he does. Sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Well, here we have his sovereign grace. Another statement that Christians use quite a bit. Maybe you're not comfortable with it yet. Maybe you haven't used it yet. But I'm going to do my best to pastor you. And you'll hear me say it a lot. His sovereign grace would be his free grace to extend his favor to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. He's totally free to do this. And it's not because somehow we earn it. It's not how that we're deserving. It's not that he sees, oh, 
there's Pat. He's so good. He, 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 he's been a good little boy this Christmas. No call for him. He's such a good little boy, and I'm such a good big Santa, not sovereign, that I'm going to give him what he deserves. It's not who we're talking about. We're talking about the sovereign, free, powerful, almighty God. And none of us, we all deserve worse than Cole. We're, 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 when, when he sends his son, we're, hit, we're in the enemy status. We're not in the family yet. That comes as a result of, we're going to read about adoption, but we're not in the family now. There's hostility between us and God. And he, even though there's hostility, freely gives his son, not because we earn it, deserve it, because he sees that little light inside of us. That's what we mean in Christian circles when we say his sovereign grace. And we see it here in the statement, God sent forth His Son. He did it. There's nothing in our text or context that would make us conclude that He did it because He saw something in us. It's because it's what He wanted to do. It wasn't because He had to do it. It's because it's what He wanted to do. Maybe complementing this would be verse 5. Verse 5, to redeem. Notice, He does all the actions. He's the acting agent, if you want to be technical, to redeem. He's going to do it freely himself. Sovereign grace. It's not a partnership. It's a one-way thing. He does it all. Keep reading in verse 5. Those who were under the law so that we might receive. How about that? We receive adoption as sons. So we, we partner with him. No. That's why theologians for years and years and years have talked about the empty hand of faith. We receive it. This is, this is sovereign grace. It's not, I see that hand. We, we receive it. It's all, it's all God's sovereign grace. We're not going to take the time to go there, but we could go to Ephesians chapter 2 or Philippians chapter 1. The, 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 even the open hand, if the open hand is faith, has been opened by God. <laughs> and so we say, This stirs my affection. This stirs my worship. This stirs my praise. Because God sending His Son into this world is an act of God's free grace. An act of His freedom to do this. And He didn't have to do it because of something in us. And it should cause us to want to worship Him and praise Him. We get this on one level, right? We get grace on one level because it's, it's holidays and people give you gifts. You don't say, oh, thank you for the gift. How much do I owe you? But it's just an analogy, right? Because we don't really get this because we really don't have a... Most of us. I can't think of a good, perfect illustration of grace. Because even the gifts you receive at Christmas time, if you do... somehow have to do with who you are. Somehow have to do with something you're worth to somebody else. I'm going to give gifts to my children because they're my children. I'm going to give a gift to my wife because she's my wife. And I'm going to give gifts to friends because they've been good friends. And, you know, that kind of thing. And there's a glimpse of grace in there. We get that. But think about this. When God sends forth His Son for us, We're not in the family. 
don't really have a point of comparison. He's giving gifts to enemies. I'm not going to give any gifts to my enemies this year. Maybe I should. I'd understand grace, sovereign grace, a little bit better. And don't don't try this at home, by the way, you know. <laughs> I just want you to know that I'm giving you this gift, and as a Christian, I wanted to really make the point about Christian giving. And um, I despise you <laughs> for all the wrong you've done against me, so this makes it a true gift. Uh, I wouldn't advise that. Probably not a good idea. Um, <laughs> but let's realize that when God sends forth His Son, it's while we were... Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Hmm. Wow. It's amazing. Grace is indeed amazing. It's outstanding. We could all learn a thing or two from Mary, the mother of Jesus. Listen to what Mary says when she hears the news of the coming of Jesus. I'll quote Mary, Luke chapter 1, verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The young, sinful Jewish woman hears the news of the sending of God's Son. And she says, I rejoice in God my Savior. She doesn't say, I rejoice in God my assistant. Rejoice in God, my Savior. See, for her, it is what it should be for us. It's worship-inducing. Praise-igniting. God sent His Son into the world. What's the meaning behind that? Well, one aspect would be sovereign grace. Oh, it elicits rejoicing and praise, you see. Another devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the costliness of it. The costliness of it. We're going to stick with that statement in verse 4. We're not ready to move on yet. At least I'm not. Verse 4 says, God sent forth His Son. At least for a couple of moments, let's realize that that is a costly thing for God to send forth His Son. I probably say it too often. Pardon me for that. But there's only one thing that ever cost God anything. Think about that if you haven't before. Nothing has ever cost God anything. God spoke the world into existence. God owns everything. To quote the psalmist, He owns, the, uh, he, he owns all uh, the cattle on a thousand hills. He, it's, it's all His. He doesn't have to buy anything. Nothing costs Him anything. One thing did. He sent His Son. Romans chapter 8 verse 32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up, cost. John 3.16, God so loved the world, or God loved the world in this way. This unique way would be a good literal rendering. That He gave His unique Son. One thing that cost him. So the costliness of the coming of Jesus, again, what does that do? What should it do? We say, this is great cost. This is a great gift. 
gift I didn't deserve. So I, I, I bless your most magnificent, gracious, holy name, Father. What a gift. I know that this is what it means for Jesus to come into this world. It cost the Son something too, according to Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, because He emptied Himself and took on the form of a servant. He's a king, He's not a servant. But He took on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. It's just more reason, more reason, more reason for thanksgiving. And you might be thinking, I have my holidays mixed up. Um, Christmas, if you want to refer to Christmas as shorthand for the coming of Jesus, provides the foundation for thanksgiving. Because he, He's given to us at great cost. So we give Him thanks. It's good, huh? It's really good. Another devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the Christology of it. The Christology of it. And if that sounds theological, it's because it is. The Christology of it. The study of Christ. The meaning of Christ. And, and maybe right about now, you might be thinking, this, is, this all seems theological. I, I just came to Omaha Bible Church today because I wanted to worship. Meaning and significance provides the sure foundation, if you will, for our worship. When we read the Bible, whether it be an example of worship, or just even how God explains Himself, it's always about theological truths. Theology means the study of God. Christology, study of Christ. And so it's because of who God is and what God does, the response then from the people of God is worship. It's adoration and praise and thanksgiving. But what it isn't is worship just because of an experience in and of itself. Because What's that going to be? And how long is that going to last? And now, all of a sudden, I had this kind of experience, but now I don't have it anymore, and it's empty. And so what we want to do time and time again is think like God does in this, and it's, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what it means. And guess what's going to happen as a result of that? We are going to fall over ourselves, if you will, in praise and adoration and thanksgiving, because we understand that it's not just hype. It's not hype at all. And it will last. I'm not saying that that, that that expression of it isn't there. Some of you could use some help. Um, I don't know what I would do if I came to Omaha Bible Church and I didn't get to do this. See, I, I, get, to do, I get to do this and you get to do this. <laughs> this is extraordinary, but it's based upon what's happened and the meaning of what's happened. And so then we do want to praise Him. And exalt Him. And I, I'm being a little, you know, offhandedly silly. It's not just here as we gather. And it's not just in musical worship. It's in life worship. It's in what we do. It's in devotion to Him. Because He's worthy of our devotion. It's extraordinary. Well, we haven't even gotten to the point four yet. But I got you all set up for it. I got you set up for theology. The Christology of this is exceptional. 
Because in verse 4, we're not making it past verse 4 for a little bit yet. I promise we will later. But still in verse 4, let's look at it again. Let's turn it over and look at a different angle from a different light. God sent forth His Son. God sent forth His Son. The Christology of that is pretty simple, but you might miss it if you don't think about it and you don't uh, look at it and really think God sent forth His Son. When did Jesus become the Son? At Bethlehem? No, because then that verse doesn't make any sense. He sends forth His Son. He's the Son before Bethlehem. Pre-Bethlehem, He's the Son. He's the eternal Son. He's always been the Son. And the Christology of it is, if He's always been the Son, then He's none other than divine. John chapter 17 is a great cross-reference if you want to jot it down. John 17, verse 5, in quote-unquote the, the Lord's Prayer. We looked at the disciples' prayer last week. Now the Lord's Prayer, His high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, verse 5. And now Jesus says, quoting Jesus, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And he's talking to him as Father. He's the Son. And restore that glory that I had with you before the world existed. Guess what? We're talking about the eternal Son. The Christology of him coming into this world is the Son. The eternal Son. Who who possesses eternal glory as none other than God does. Comes into this world. And, and, And now here we are again saying the theology of it should be worship inducing. Because we're talking about Jesus. Who's the Son? I mean, sometimes, you know, people kind of misunderstand. They say, you know, well, you you talk about this Jesus like, you know, you you worship Him or something. Ta-da! Yeah, that's kind of the deal. The eternal Son comes here, sent by His Father, who's always and forever will be the Son. But then the other side of the Christology is, also in verse 4, we're moving ahead, we're getting, we're having progress, you're feeling encouraged, says in verse 4, born of a woman. Born of a woman. So the eternal Son becomes one of us. That's what's happening. That's why the genealogy is so important in Matthew chapter 1, for, for example. He really becomes a human being. He really becomes one of us. We really need him to be one of us. How, how can he, as, as the hymn writer says, you know, bleed for Adam's helpless race unless he becomes one of Adam's race, unless he becomes one of us. And the way to become one of us is to be born of a woman. Born of a woman. Christians have been very careful to talk about this in particular ways, and rightfully so. He's not 50% God, because if you're 50% God, then you're not God. He's fully God as He's affirmed again and again in the Scriptures and He's fully human. Because if you're 50% human, you're not human. He's the God-man. He's the God-man. And you say, I don't have a point of reference. I I don't really get this. And and, and I have nothing to compare Him to. And when I try to compare Him to something, I, I just have people look at me like I'm saying wrong things. You are. There's no point of comparison. And if there were a point of comparison, you could worship many different quote-unquote Christs. But if there's only one who is the God-man, you worship Him. You worship Him. Genuinely one of us. 
the Christology of this provides the meaning. Who do you say that I am, you know? Who, what do you believe about Jesus? What's the meaning of Christmas? We ask these kinds of questions. And there are multiple different answers because there's a deep meaning. But it certainly means that the eternal Son humbled Himself and became a human being. He became one of us. And you say, how do you know that? That's your interpretation. No, it's not. what the apostle of Jesus Christ says. But I don't have a point of reference and I, I, I can't fathom something that I can't compare to something else. Well, then you can't be a worshiper of Jesus. The point is, in the fullness of time, this isn't ongoing, this isn't normative, this isn't regular, in the fullness of time, this is what happens. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Isn't this good? I love this kind of stuff. It's just like, yeah. This will tie in with redemption in just a little while. We'll see. Another devotion-stirring feature, number five. We're, we're still going to talk theology here, so hang in there. You realize I'm just being somewhat sarcastic, right? Or, or It's all about theology, quite honestly. It's all about God. The Trinitarian nature of it. Another devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the Trinitarian nature of it. And this is classic. It's classic. We have the Father sending. Look at verse 4 again. We're not quite ready to leave it alone. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent. No question whatsoever. It's talking about God the Father. Then we have the Son redeeming. Look at verse 4 again where we go on and read, God sent forth His Son. So now we have God the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem. So now the Son is the one who's going to redeem. If we want to think in terms of the Ephesians 1 structure, you have the Father choosing, the Father sending the Son, and the Son is going to redeem those that the Father has chosen. That's the Ephesians 1 structure. So they're working together in this. Then verse 6, we have the Spirit applying, where we read in verse 6, God sent the, has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And again, if we rely on Ephesians a little bit to help us out there where Paul writes, you've got Father sending, the Son volunteering, no doubt we would learn in Ephesians chapter 5. Son providing the work of redemption on our behalf and then the Spirit of God applying the work of the Son. And you see all three in our text. Let's have a Trinitarian Christmas. Because the coming of Jesus into this world is the work of the triune God. The one true God who has always been the one true God, who will always be the one true God, who has eternally existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't even try to come up with an analogy. There isn't one. Beyond our comprehension, but not beyond our response. And our response is worship. It's no wonder in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And he just goes on and on and on and on and on. Triune worship. 
It's extraordinary. Another devotion-stirring feature of the coming of Jesus would be the redemptive purposes of it. The redemptive purposes of it. Born of a woman. Yeah, he needs to become one of us so he could work on our behalf as a human being. So he's born of a woman. That needs to happen, as we'll see more fully later. And then it says, born under the law in verse 4. That's really important. For now, just for now, let's just acknowledge that Jesus is, is born of a woman, born under the law. He's a Jew. He's a Jew. He's born, born under the Mosaic law. And, and he needs to do everything the Mosaic law calls for. And he does. He does. He fulfills the law. It's necessary. And we'll see what this has to do with redemption if we, if we look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So see, our redemption, our being freed from sin is tied to Jesus being born of a woman and being born under the law key to being adopted as sons would be Jesus being born of a woman. We need him to be a human being. And not only that, we need him to be born under the law so he can fulfill the law. Now what's interesting is Galatians makes clear that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. Galatians goes out of its way to to make clear that he didn't just come for the Jews. He came for Jews and Gentiles. For example, Galatians 3.8 And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations, that's Jew and Gentile, be blessed. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. You are all one in Christ Jesus. The reason I'm bringing this up is because it looks pretty Jewish when he's born under the law to redeem us who are under the law. And you might be saying, well, that's not me, because, you know, it seems pretty mosaic in the context. And yet the rest of Galatians has Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes like Abraham believes, is saved, justified, adopted, part of the family. Well, think of it in these terms. This might not be the best explanation, but it's what I have for today. If Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law, Okay, If he does that, he most certainly, most definitely fulfills the eternal law, the universal law, the law that's written on all of our hearts, the law described in Romans chapter 2 that we all are accountable to. So if we argue from the greater to the lesser, if, if he fulfills the Mosaic law, he can't do that unless he also is fulfilling the law that we're all under, the Romans chapter 2 universal law. Point being, when it comes to application, Jesus did everything necessary, fulfilled the law of God so that we could be acceptable. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. That, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, help me, Jesus. Help me. I'm losing my train of thought. Oh, what 
what I say so often, maybe that's why. If the essence of the law, when you bare bones it, which I say all the time, is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus does that. Jesus does that. He does more than that. But that's what you need him to do. That's what I need him to do. So that then God can look at you as if you're one who's loved God with heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, even though you haven't. So that God can then accept you based upon the work of his son. So when we come to the, the, the redemptive nature of all of this, we want him born under the law. And he is, and he fulfills the law for Jews and Gentiles. Law generally speaking, law mosaically speaking, if you want to put it in those terms. Both would be true. Some of you carry a MacArthur Study Bible. There's a very helpful note. Um, at the end of the note on verse 4, I won't take the time to read it. I don't have it in front of me, so I won't take the time to read it. Um, just explaining how this works in a good uh, sum, summarized kind of way because you've got God giving His Son, fulfilling the law based upon His law-keeping, then God can look at us and give us Christ's credit, Christ's righteousness, so that we can be acceptable before God. It's the idea, something we talk about all the time. He's our great Redeemer because He's born under the law, born of a woman. It should cause us to be thankful and to praise Him. Finally, number seven, another devotional, devotion-stirring feature, and we'll end on this would be the personal benefit of it. The personal benefit of it. Verse 6 and 7. And because you are sons, writing to Christians, people like you and people like me, because you are sons. And you say, is he just talking to men? No. He's already made it clear in chapter 3 that he's talking about men and women. But to men and women, he's not being insensitive. He's not being overly patriarchal. He's saying to a mixed audience, describing a mixed audience, we are sons. And you know why that's good? Whether we like it or not, in an ancient world, you have the eldest son being at the place of privilege. Well, Jesus is the eldest son. But when it comes to privileges, God describes all of us, men or women, boys or girls, if we're trusting in Christ, He describes us all as sons. And you want to be a son, even if you're a daughter. Because the point is privilege, blessing. The point is heirship. And we see that as we keep reading. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son, if a, and if a son, then an heir through God. All the rights, all the privileges, we're part of the family, we were alien, we were hostile, we were strangers, and now we're heirs. And it's personal. It's personal. I want to take a moment or two to make sure you understand the personal nature of this. I know you do theoretically, intellectually, but sometimes at OBC and in churches like this, we take the Bible seriously, the gospel seriously, we take theology seriously, which is how it should be, we think. What happens is we understand these concepts, 
We understand these truths and we embrace them and we love them and we want to understand them better. And I say, good job. But sometimes we overreact to what isn't that. And we, we overreact to people who say, well, to me, well, I can't really know something unless I've experienced it. And, you know, that's what you think and that's what I think. And they're mutually exclusive, but they can both be true. And we go, what? How can that be? And, and experience somehow is sovereign and experience defines. And we know better and we say, you know what, that, that, that's, not, that's not reality. And so if that's the pers- uh, experience defines, our pushback is to go over here and sometimes we go too far. And we stop thinking that this stuff is personal. Stop thinking that this is personal. I just want to remind you this morning, it's personal. If you're trusting in Christ, you are a son. You are an heir. Not that you will be one someday. You are one with all the rights and privileges. That God doesn't just make us, his children, that's important. We, corporate is important. But he makes you his child. And he cares about you. We have to remember that. I want you to remember that. Remember Romans chapter 8 where Paul talks about these things in a very personal way where he says, those whom he for." Loved, foreknew, for love is the idea. Those whom, personal. Those whom he called, those whom he justified. It's personal. And so, let's, let's react to experience defines reality. But let's not overreact because we're talking about real experience and God really caring about you and God really loving you and, and, and God really making you an heir. And if that's true, Romans 8 says, it means he'll give you every good thing. Romans 8 is awesome. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See what's happening? If you're an heir, he's your Abba Father, your daddy, if, if that's the relationship you have with him, and you do if you're a Christian, even if you haven't fully accessed it, if you will, that is the relationship. And, and now, if he's given his son for you, which would be the greatest thing he could ever do, the logic is impeccable here. Won't he also give you every good gift? Yeah. It's a great passage too because it's in the context of suffering in a broken world. Waiting for Jesus to return. Waiting for the return of Christ. Anxiously longing. Facing death even. Remember too, and we'll end on this, the Galatians are relatively new Christians. And they're not grounded in these basics. They're not grounded in these basics and so they're being 
tempted to, to they're, 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 they're facing the allurement of false teachers. And so what does the Apostle Paul do? He just brings them back to the basics. Let me remind you of these basic truths about what it means for you to be an heir. You're an heir because of the work of Christ and only because of the work of Christ. But if you're an heir, that means you're a son. That means you're in the family. That means you have the Spirit. That means you're in a right standing before God and it's not based upon what you do. It's good to remember that. It's really good to remember that. We know the meaning of Christmas. We know the meaning of Christmas. The response of Christmas should be one of worship, praise and thanksgiving. Father, thank you so much for the glorious, glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he came here, that he was sent here as the unique son who was also one of us. We're thankful that he suffered that he was tempted, that he was tried. He did these things for us. and We're thankful for that ultimate climactic expression of these things at Calvary. And we're thankful that you raised him from the dead. We're thankful that he ascended and has promised to return as he ascended. And we anxiously wait for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.